1: They're building a new city in Saudi Arabia, a city they proclaim like no other. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense.
2: It will be two thirds the size of Belgium. It will be a technological marvel according to the Saudi government. It will basically mimic the role that Singapore has played and Hong Kong played before that in terms of financial centers in new parts of the world. It will be focused very much on technology powered by carbon neutral sources. It will attract supposedly the best minds and the best projects and be an accelerator for human progress. That's what they're calling it. And that line has been repeatedly trotted out. Some, Some of the lines have fallen away, but that accelerator of human progress line
1: is really at the forefront. Now, I don't know how real this is or whether it's just over the top PR, but NEOM, when completed, will also have glow-in-the-dark sand on its Red Sea beaches, robot dinosaurs and maids, and even an artificial moon to light up the night sky. Though how they're going to achieve that is anyone's guess. What's clear is that the project is designed to impress.
2: You can look at these ancient hills and see nothing. Or you can see nothing to hold you back. No set ways of thinking... No restrictions, no divisions, no excuses, just endless potential. This is the blank page you need to write humanity's next chapter,
3: NEOM.
0: This is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's dream project, a vision for a modernistic, futuristic city, a massive city that's meant to be over 30 times greater than New York City, for example. So a true megalopolis that is meant to be an international hub populated by international resort vacationers, high-tech people, cosmopolitans from around the world, that this will be a place that they'll want to live in.
1: That the oil-rich leadership of Saudi Arabia should seek to build a grand city of the future is probably not that much of a surprise. But the scale and ambition of this particular project, coupled with the social and political dynamics of the region, make the futuristic city of Neom a fascinating project. UK-based reporter Bill Bostock has been following developments in Saudi Arabia for Business Insider.
2: So what does it look like? It looks like, as you'd imagine, a futuristic Blade Runner meets iRobot scenario, gleaming sandy beaches, metres away from glass skyscrapers, designed by the best architects in the world, huge business parks. It will basically be Saudi Arabia's face to the world. It will be their financial center. They don't have one already, really. They have Riyadh, but it's a bit of a building site, and they want a shiny face for the new Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman. And its position, you know, it's positioned on the junction between Jordan and Egypt and very much the gateway to the Arab world for Europe and North Africa, if you look at it. So it's very symbolic. And it is right on the waterfront, so it will it will seem very forward-facing.
1: Given where it's located and given the size of the project, it doesn't sound as though it's going to be environmentally sustainable.
2: Yes. I mean, as with all the big cities, you're thinking traffic, air pollution, noise pollution. But the plans that Neom have set out do very much focus on carbon efficiency. For example, Saudi Arabia is the world's largest desalinator of water, and this year they've organize a partnership with Solar Water as a British company to create the solar dome which will desalinate water and use solar power to create electricity I mean this is part of a plan to make the city entirely carbon neutral and if we rely and fall back on the initial consulting plans that were mentioned this city will be incredibly streamlined it will have you know sort of hovercrafts and flying taxis these this is the vision the vision is to be you know, a shiny new toy, not a smoggy old backstreet.
1: What's the timeline for the project? I understand some work has begun on it, but when are they looking to finish phase one and, and when is the expected completion date?
2: Yes, so when Mohammed bin Salman announced the project in 2017, he said 2025, this will be um, when we're off and running. Shortly after the Khashoggi murder happened and that derailed a lot of
1: foreign investments. This is the, uh, um, the murder of a, a Saudi American journalist that was quite controversial.
2: Yes, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which came exactly a year after Mohammed bin Salman announced the project. So he had said 2025, but since that time, caution has been applied and the brakes have been tapped lightly. Phase one, as you mentioned, was actually completed in July last year. Phase two has started already. Phase one entailed the creation of the Neon Bay airport, which had its first flight that just in around July last year. That will serve the city and be one of a number of airports serving the city. Also included in phase one was the construction of some housing on the outskirts of one of the, I think, close to 15 boroughs that are planned to be within Neom. So they've done a little bit already, but to me, their target of 2025, they would have to go at warp speed.
1: Several large international consultancies were hired to advise in the early stages Mm -hmm. of the, the project. What sort of influence have they had on this?
2: What we know so far is that the world's biggest consultants, including McKinsey and Oliver Wyman, were initially tasked with coming up with a blueprint for the city. This happened and the plans, as they were, were ended up being reported by the Wall Street Journal. And they painted a picture of sort of futuristic paradise, which would, you know, sort of be Saudi Arabia's you know, future and symbolize their intentions for their country. Since that point, various consultancies have come in and left again as the project has grown. Architectural consultants have come in and left. Lots of tech consultants have come in and left. So there's, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of business being brought in. There's a lot of pitching going on. The UK government department of international trade has been working very closely with British startups and trying to get them out there, flying them back and forth to Riyadh. So there's a, there's a huge amount of consulting, a huge amount of planning, and the the flagship website for neum has some of these renderings and artist renderings on it you can see the shape the city may take in future over 25,000 square kilometers of inspiration with room for your biggest ideas a part of the world set
1: aside for those who want to change the world a startup the size of a country
2: that will change
1: the way- What's in it for the Crown Prince? Why has he chosen this kind of project as I guess a signature of his rule of the country?
2: He is incredibly young, he is thirty four, he is a tech obsessed guy, he's a big in the, in the run-up to him becoming crown prince, he was known for loving computer games and being on social media and just being young. Saudi Saudi Arabia is an incredibly young country, and he, the millennial crown prince, um, represents those people. So it's a reflection of him as a person. He is very forward-thinking in terms of technology and is desperate to move Saudi Arabia away from the sort of old, stultified, oil-based formality to a more modern diverse and technological place so it's, it's, it's definitely a reflection of him as a young reformer a young you know technologically literate man crown prince is trying to say that he as a young man as well as a monarch is willing and ready to join the global world order this is the year that saudi arabia chaired the g20 this is the year that women were permitted to join the army it's saying to the world We are ready. We are open for business. I am not my father. I am not the previous crown prince. This is the new world order. Please get on board. Please come here. This is the focus of the Arab world from now on.
1: But that vision of Saudi Arabia's future will be limited by the borders of the new city of Neom. Because beyond the bright new suburbs, the old Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of ultra-conservative Wahhabism and political oppression, will continue to exist. Sarah Lee Whitson is the former executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division.
0: By building this city that's going to have vast facial recognition features and surveillance, ostensibly to eliminate crime, drone-operated taxis, you know, luxury resorts, he thinks that he can build a place that will attract the international community, in a kind of isolated place without affecting the rest of the country, but somehow altering the reputation of Saudi Arabia as a more open and cosmopolitan place.
1: So if this went ahead, there would in fact be two Saudi Arabias, wouldn't there? Um, you know, There'd be the Saudi Arabia that we know today, and then this other much more cosmopolitan Saudi Arabia.
0: That's exactly right, and indeed they uh, are considering or have proposed, the advisor to you know, a whole separate legal system, a whole separate judicial system that will be built for the modern age, that will be one that people from the international community will be comfortable with and will trust and will have the basic tenets of justice that the international community expects. One question, of course, is why shouldn't the Saudi people benefit from the very same justice system that presumably will provide more equal rights for men and women, uh, that presumably will allow for privacy and some modicum of free expression? It's really somewhat strange that a modern legal system is something that only this new and visionary city will have the benefit of, but not the people of Saudi Arabia. But second of all, there's a different element of disrespect, which is, you know, to build this city where the government recognizes it is so disharmonious with the culture and mores and religion of the broad swaths of the population, to not try to build a futuristic city that is inclusive, that tries to find a balance um, with where Saudis are comfortable, where they feel their country is something they can be proud of, and this city is something they can be proud of, just would seem to make a lot more sense as well. But that seems also something to be lacking here.
1: Just going back to something that you said earlier, you talked about the promise of facial recognition technology and surveillance to make this a a safe environment and to eliminate crime. What are your concerns in that regard?
0: Uh, It's sort of funny and a bit ironic that the uh, uh, Nehom uh, board and Nihom Company is offering this massive, unprecedented system of surveillance as a positive feature to people uh, to attract them, to come live there. And, you know personally, and I imagine many others would shudder at the thought of having this sort of futuresque, 1984-ish mass surveillance of facial recognition and so forth that will make the system that the Chinese have put in place in Xinjiang and other parts of China seem like an old clunky computer from 1970. It's interesting that they even need to promise this level of security and surveillance, because Saudi Arabia is actually not a crime-ridden country, and crime is not a particular problem in the country, uh, given that it's a well-resourced one. So I really am baffled as to why this would be an appealing feature but certainly it is one that is meant to attract technologists and those who want to build these surveillance technologies. Frankly for me it's quite scary.
1: And then there are questions about the way in which the Saudi authorities have begun forcibly acquiring the vast amount of land they need in constructing their new megacity.
0: So in this region, there has been a tribe, the Hawaitat tribe, estimated of between 20 to 30,000 people who've lived in that area. And in fact, the tribe also lives in, across the border in Jordan and in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia had written about this tribe and his cooperation with this tribe. They have long seen that province, that area, as their homes and Khudeiba as their historical capital well before Saudi Arabia as a country came into existence. And now the government wants to get rid of these people because they don't quite fit into the cosmopolitan international city of the future that Mohammed bin Salman wants to build in this area. And so the government is trying to push all of these people out by offering them some sort of compensation, compensation that has been undisclosed and they've had no say in, to basically leave, to give up their historic homelands and move elsewhere."
1: This is when Saudi officials reportedly handed over the body of Abdul Rahim al-Hawaiti to his tribe. In videos uploaded on the internet, he complained that he was being asked to leave his ancestral land, a rare public defiance to a royal decree.
0: This has not been met by welcome by the Hawaitat tribe, there have been protests, which is a very rare and dramatic thing in the kingdom over the past three months. And most recently in April, uh, the situation flared into violence as the government killed perhaps the lead most prominent protester, Abdul Rahman al-Hawaiti, who had eerily foretold his murder, predicted that he would be killed by the Saudi government, and that they would subsequently claim that he's a terrorist not remarkably, the day after he was killed, that's exactly what the government claimed after the security forces moved in and, and killed him in his home.
1: And was there a response to this killing and also to the heavy-handedness from the Saudi authorities? Has there been a response within Saudi Arabia itself to this?
0: Not a free and open one, certainly. There has been some Twitter commentary on this, particularly by the exile community. And now there's a growing and sizable Saudi exile community. He's been labeled the martyr of home. But within Saudi Arabia, exercising or expressing any discontent or criticism of the government will likely result in what Mr. Al-Hlaqi faced, uh, which is an early death.
1: The confiscation of the land will not be stopped. The regime will take the land it will evict the people. It will destroy their houses. But the regime has no uh, has no financial ability to build, and was not able to to convince international investors to put money in this region. I mean, since the killing of Khashoggi, uh, most of the international companies um, uh, decided not. Uh, not to come inside Saudi Arabia and, and, and invest in any project. So neither the regime can sponsor it, nor can it be sponsored by international investment. Exiled Saudi dissident Saad al Farki speaking on the Al Jazeera News Network. The original cost of the Neom Future City project was estimated at around 500 billion US dollars. Of course, the financial cost of the current coronavirus pandemic could also deter international investors. But Business Insider's Bill Bostock says the Saudi government and the Crown Prince seem determined to push ahead.
2: They are absolutely committed to the project in all the current news from Saudi Arabia. Whenever the issue of budget cuts in like the coronavirus comes up, it says Vision 2030, which is the overarching project under which Neom is operating there has been no news of cutting back on the plans. It's very much on schedule.
1: And you're listening to Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. Now, from a vision of the future to a ghostly reminder of how futuristic cities can sometimes become present-day ghost towns. This is Yujiapu, new city, hyped to become China's Manhattan. In fact, challenging New York as the world's biggest financial district. But on our bitterly cold journey, we find it is utterly devoid of any sign of life. Since as far back as the early 1980s, China has had a bit of a thing for constructing cities of the future. Some of them, like Pudong and Shenzhen, have become emblems of the country's new economic and political status. But many others have gone nowhere – empty concrete monoliths, monuments to the unique form of hyper-capitalism known as socialism with Chinese characteristics. It's estimated there are at least 50 such ghost regions scattered across the country, and they've long been a fascination for Anne Stevenson-Young, the co-founder and research director of the China-focused consultancy J Capital Research.
3: What it basically is, is you have all of these counties and municipalities around the country and they have this mandate you have to grow and you can have as much investment capital as you like you can borrow as much as you like but you have to figure out how to grow so what all of these towns and counties did was they set up their own development companies and then they would take big loans to clear land and then they would build these new cities and then the construction companies themselves would create massive GDP boost and tax revenue for these localities. And then they would figure, well, you know, maybe we can sell these apartments and that will all be gravy on top of the construction revenues.
1: What sort of distortion then does this create for the Chinese economy and for the Chinese society?
3: Well, it creates this visible boost in GDP because you have all of these people that are, you know, you dig iron ore out of the ground in Australia, you put it onto cape-sized ships, you ship it up to China, you make all of this this cement and steel, and then you, you build stuff. So all of that activity, when you're having construction growth of, you know, 10, 12% a year, all of that activity creates a, a huge boost to GDP and to tax revenue because all of those uh, construction companies are paying taxes. But then once they're complete and the buildings don't fill up and nobody's paying you know, rents, nobody's providing services to the people who don't live there, then you have uh, GDP plummet.
1: Has the Chinese government or uh, regional governments, have they moved to try and address this issue?
3: they don't have a lot of tools in their toolkit. So what they'll do is they'll, you know, the central government will come up with something like, well, let's build the logistics industry instead of having real estate. But localities don't have any ability to build a logistics company. So what they do is they build a quote unquote logistics park, which ends up being a different type of real estate development. So, you know, they'll build all of these buildings and they'll buy trucks and so on and so forth. And then they'll offer tax benefits for logistics companies that will move in. So the logistics companies that were headquartered, you know, 10 miles away, then set up headquarters in the logistics park. So it looks like they've filled up when actually they just moved over. And is this
1: construction, is it still continuing?
3: It's hard to get good statistics right now, but you don't have the same growth that you had before because you have the COVID problem. But it is still continuing because that's the only way that China can think of to drive growth.
1: And given that uh, there is a a COVID crisis going on, as you mentioned, do these developments represent a burden for the Chinese government, the Chinese economy, as they try to deal with economic problems, the economic problems that they and others are experiencing?
3: Look, they're going to create a, a very serious problem because once you have all of these buildings, you have to maintain them. You have to have people move into them so that you can provide services in the locality. And none of that is happening. So the maintenance cost, you know, really the construction costs of these buildings should not have been added to GDP. There should have been a cost to GDP of infrastructure, but that isn't how it was accounted for or how it's normally accounted for. So instead, you have all of these huge underused assets sitting around on on the national balance sheet
1: you've written that the notion of urbanization in china is problematic there's a misunderstanding of the concept what do you mean by that
3: basically what you usually have in china is what i think of as urbanization in situ so so you'll have people living in a certain area And then the government takes over that land and knocks down everybody's houses, you know, with their agreement and buying the houses from them. And then uh, let's say the land is, is 100 hectares. So they'll move everybody over to a 20 hectare parcel and they'll build all of these new high rises and they redesignate the land. It used to be called rural and now it's called urban. And that comes with a whole lot of benefits under the Chinese bureaucratic system. So when you're an urban resident, then you get certain types of benefits, like better quota for your kids to go to school and better healthcare, pension system, all of that sort of thing. And so everybody wants to be an urban person. So you've moved everybody to 20% of this land and now you have the 80 hectares on which you can just build stuff and speculate. So then the government builds buildings on the 80% and they sell them to the same people very often who moved to the, the 20%. Um, who got reimbursed for their land. So they have cash in hand. So they'll sell them to that. And then those people have two apartments.
1: What do ordinary Chinese people think of these developments? Are they well known and are they seen as, as a problem or as an oddity?
3: I think in general, the average Chinese person has gotten used to these huge looming empty buildings in these landscapes and has kind of drunk the kool-aid of the the story that's been told that you know this is all developing it's on its way to becoming full and it will be bustling at some distant future so people generally tend to accept that story and they're very much bought into the real estate development idea the problem is that these cities are really not filling up because there's nobody to fill them
1: many of these cities are built almost as theme parks, some with traditional European themes. Could I get you to explain what the rationale is for that? Why would developers want to create, say, a, a mini Venice in China?
3: It's kind of an interesting thing. You get this idea on the part of many Chinese localities that are building these developments, that if you build the thing, then you'll have the content. In other words, you know, I'm the city of Tianjin. If I go to one of my outlying districts and I build a replica Manhattan, then I must be Manhattan, meaning I become a financial center. And the same is true of Paris and Rome and little Hong Kong and so on and so forth. So some of it is this imagination that what's really involved in having a financial center is having skyscrapers. But a lot of it is also, I think it's part of the pitch to the Chinese people that things are developing really fast and we should all have confidence in real estate and that other countries have these cities and so we will as well. So one of the interesting things about all of these real estate developments in China is that they're very often modeled after Western models. So you go into the model apartments, the one thing they always, always have is a jar of pasta. That's something that no Chinese person eats. Chinese people make their own pasta or they buy it fresh at the market. They don't use dried pasta. You also always have a fake bottle of champagne sitting in a champagne bucket, and you often have red wine. Those are things that Chinese people don't use. You know, the types of dishes they put on the table, the types of... These are all, you know, Western ideas. They'll have uh, pictures of people in white wedding dresses, all sorts of stuff that Chinese people actually don't do and aren't that comfortable with, but it's the projection of this idea that we're going to become like the West.
1: And that would seem to go against uh, Xi Jinping's philosophy, wouldn't it, of, of trying to uh, show that a Chinese culture is a, a dominant culture and, and more successful than European culture?
3: I guess so. I hadn't really thought of that part. I think that Xi Jinping's a critical portion of the ideology that he's been trying to promulgate is the idea that, you know, Deng Xiaoping said to get rich is glorious. And the idea was that China had this unbridled development path and anybody could get rich. Since Hu Jintao and now with Xi Jinping, the idea is Kang Shihui, like moderately prosperous society. So you're not supposed to get rich anymore. You shouldn't have a Jaguar, but you might have an Alto. You know, you might not be able to have a villa, but you can have a two-bedroom apartment that you should lower your sights and that Chinese people should be satisfied with a little bit less. That's the message.
1: You've been following this development for some time. What's the interest for you? What fascinates you about the development of these ghost cities?
3: I'm fascinated by this general sense of self-delusion. Like, for example, there's a town in the middle of Hunan province that I used to go to from time to time, where what they do is they raise hogs, right? And it's, it's definitely not a wealthy town, and the people are not wealthy people, and, you know, they, they drive tractors, or maybe they have really, really small compact cars, but it has these huge posters outside of Western people walking in luxurious paths between fountains and and green grass and, and flowers and sculptures. These are things that you really just don't find in the middle of China, and yet people are walking along the streets in this hog town and apparently thinking to themselves, someday... I'm going to live there. I find that interesting and I wonder when the scales are going to drop from everybody's eyes and they're going to look at these empty towers and see actual empty rather than potential.
1: Anne Stevenson-Young from J Capital Research, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: And that's Future Tense for another week. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. If you're keen to hear this episode again, remember you can always podcast it. And if you don't want to do that, you can simply stream it from our website. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.
3: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great
0: ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.